0: All right, Dale. Thanks, man. As I said right before the camera clicked on, it's just you and me today. As we record this, it's week number one in the open. So Adrian's out gallivanting around the world, uh, watching people work out. So he'll he'll be back. He'll be back later on. But I think I appreciate you making the time, man. Completely and utterly selfish on his behalf. <laughs> you know, it's, that's how I describe him to other people. A self centered, <laughs> a self centered individual. You were. Brought to my attention by a, a buddy of mine who uh, I think I was chatting with and trying to figure out somebody to interview because, again, Bosman's gone. And he's like, oh, man, I got somebody for you. And he he mentioned you and your story and what you had going on at your gym. And for as long as I've been doing CrossFit, there's not too many things that um, get me like, oh, that's... A story that I haven't heard. I'd like to dive into that, and, and yours was one of them. So, uh, let let people know, you know, a little bit about yourself. You're a gym owner. Let them know where you're from, and then I'll, you know, we can we can take it from there.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, I am from God's country in beautiful southern, sunny Southern Ohio, uh, a small town called Portsmouth. Um, prior to that, I was uh, in the army for a little bit. That's when I started doing CrossFit uh, in 2007 got out, uh, three years later would open up, um, the gym PSKC as this little side hustle while I was still working for the government. And then eventually was able to, to, uh, go full-time and to run the gym in 15, um, same year just so happened. I opened up another little side hustle called doc Spartan. Uh, we would go get a deal on shark tank a year or so later. Um, and then around 2018, we started working, we started using our gym as a way to uh, work with folks in, uh, in addiction and recovery. And um, 2020 opened up another hustle uh, as a way to help kind of bring kettlebell manufacturing to Portsmouth, Ohio, in a very, very small, small way. So that's it in a
0: nutshell. You've been busy. What else am I gonna do, man? Work for a living? Yeah, it beats, it beats working, right? I I tell you the the Shark Tank thing could be interesting in and of itself just to dive into, um, but we we'll shelf that for later if we yeah. if we have time or, or whatnot. Because sure, the biggest thing that you you mentioned that that caught my attention about you was the whole using your gym, using your community, using physical fitness, using CrossFit to help people with addiction, like like seriously changing lives. There's a whole lot of changing life that gets thrown around, makes for great memes, the whole nine yards. But I mean, somebody in the trench is really doing it. That's, that's what made me want to reach out and talk to you. And that's what I want to get to eventually. But before I get to that, you mentioned that you were in the military, was that right out of high school, right out of college? Or did you hop into the military for after another career?
1: No, that was um, I did ROTC in college. And so as soon as I graduated college in 03,
0: I was a brand new commissioned officer. I did ROTC as well. And I found it, sure. it it woefully did not prepare me for the for the roles and responsibilities of of leading <laughs> of leading people that have been doing the job for about 15 years. So those little gold oh. bars don't go too far. Brother, you are not lying. <laughs> so you you headed into the army. And was the intention always to not make it a career or did something along the path make that decision for you?
1: Well, we were, um, just sure as you know, I was a Intel dude. Um, but I was, I was very lucky to be assigned to 10th special forces group. So op tempo at that time was pretty crazy. So we were just seven months on seven months off. Um, and that was going to be the foreseeable (laughs) foreseeable future. Um, so I got, got married. Uh, we did like a little justice of the peace marriage before the first deployment. And, uh, she moved out there by herself. Um, we got to spend a little bit of time in between the second deployment. Um, and then after the came home from the second deployment, she was basically like, maybe we should, uh, do a little career hunting somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was right at my getting out mark. So I, I always knew it was like, hey, my, my first ability to get out, um, I'm either going to do that or I'm going to make a career out of it. Mm-hmm. So I uh, exited at that point, um, tried to work for some for some other folks, which would have been equally uh, <laughs> equally uh, operationally tempo high. But mm-hmm. um, was fortunate enough, man, like a complete fluke um, came home and
0: started working for the Department of Energy for a couple of years. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, people who haven't lived that life, I can't speak for your particular group there in the army, but I'm going to have a gut feeling and a hunch that's not too far off from my former community in the Navy. The, the divorce rate is through the roof, unless you make some sort of a decision, like you said, because you know, most people, ideally, most people, if you decide to get married to somebody, that's hopefully that means you'd like to spend a little bit of time with them and being constantly out the door, um, doing other work and then coming home, jarring the family life back out the door again, back home, establishing relationships back out the door again. Man, for those that don't know that, I mean, that's a tough way to roll. That's a it's, it's a tough way. So yeah, I, I, mean, I can't blame you for making that decision, quite frankly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and like um, we didn't have any kids or anything, but what really kind of sold the deal was um, guys I worked with and watching their kids grow up on email,
0: and Mm -hmm. that was like, that's I don't uh, I don't think I can can do that. No, my hats off to the people you know, and people need to do it. God bless them who do it. Somebody's got to stand that line. And when I when I was in and, and doing that stuff, I didn't have kids either, and now having kids it's borderline unimaginable to me how people pull that off. It is, it's a feat of strength that I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I'm strong enough to do it. I think it'd break me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I never had to figure that out.
0: Yeah. So you came back, um, little department of energy stuff for a while. And then eventually you wound up opening your gym in 2010. Is that right? Yes, sir. 2010. Now, that was a while ago. You were in, an <laughs> early adopter, my friend. That, that's that's pretty that's pretty darn cool. When you, uh, I you know, of course, I did a little sleuthing on you as well uh, on the internet, and I listened to a couple speeches that you gave, a couple talks that you gave as well. And I don't want to make sure I'm I'm not misspeaking here. Did you open the gym already in 2010 with the intention of? of serving a greater good, such as the drug crisis in your local area, or did that happen later And the gym opened first? So the gym opened first and, and full transparency, man, the,
1: the gym ended up serving me more than anyone else. Um, How so? I was at that point of time. uh, it, It wasn't for me like a matter of PTSD or anything. It was just a matter of struggling to, uh reintegrate back into society um you know had a re- like unbelievable uh deployments as far as scope of responsibility seeing the first iraqi elections um just unbelievable things and then i come home and it's just like uh what what <laughs>
0: What yeah, is going I, I, on? I was going to say for people who maybe haven't lived that life, when you say a tough time reintegrating, what's that mean? So it's
1: like I mean, I always use the line: um,
0: more the people
1: knew all family, all family members of the Kardashian family than they could name two people that died in the global war on terror.
0: Sure, right, right, right. Yeah,
1: and you know, being young, you're just kind of you you know you're a little bit angry and pissed off about, about that and trying to trying to navigate the waters of understanding the sacrifice and what was it all for um, and so luckily I had started doing I started doing CrossFit when I was leaving the army mm, um, okay. and that kind of gave me cuz now I had a real job working for the government which you know is the single must <laughs> red tape bureaucratic, uh,
0: <laughs> just, efficiency. In the just an efficient, beautiful <laughs> engine.
1: Um, and so I was just like, well, this professional thing sucks. Um, so I had latched onto CrossFit as like my sole focus. Um, and honestly, man, like it, it really was, it was it was an addiction for me mm-hmm. uh, in the most positive, powerful way. And so I, I no longer belonged to a unit. Uh, I no longer had a tribe. I no longer had people that I was, had bonded and formed really intimate connections with. And, um, luckily th- the gym gave that to me.
0: I think I, well, I don't want to speak for veterans in general. Uh, I'm sure there's some veterans that connect with it and some that don't, but I'm sure it applies to plenty of folks who never served in any way, shape or form. Yeah. That's that sense of meaning community and all that stuff. And, there's just something different and unique, though, about the military. There really is. I and mean, you can play on a sports team and bond mm-hmm. with those people and all of that. But you'll still see, you know, like i watch my kids on their sports teams. And some of them are excellent. But you still have to, like these selfish players on the team that put themselves above the team. And I just, it's so foreign from the teams that I was on, that would be one of the biggest disgraces that you could do. Like the team came before you. You were all in this common good, arms locked together, marching forward. The person standing next to you was more important than yourself. And and that was so common that you didn't even have to explain it. And then you reenter the, sil- the civilian world and suddenly it's not common. And you have this shock and you're looking around trying to find some semblance of what you experience for so long and it's it's like a magical unicorn that you can't seem to, to track down in everywhere. And uh, you know, I uh, I had a little bit of, of that as well, to be honest with you. Yeah.
1: Well and too, it's like the absence of hard work. <laughs> I,
0: mean,
1: sure. <laughs> sure. I mean at least in, in my experience, and I clearly I can't speak for everyone, but it's just like there there is no enjoyment of hard work here. Um mm. in doing whatever it takes and the mission coming first and figuring out a way to make things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, whoa, whoa ooh, this is a complete kind of culture shock for me. Um, and then two, it kind of in parallel. So I was navigating with my own personal issues of, of that, which they weren't really bad, man. Um, you know, the main things were like lack of connection to, to something was mm-hmm. one. And then the other thing was like, what is the purpose of my life now? For sure. Um, Am I gonna am I gonna be 25 years from now when I can retire and, and do what I want? Will I be a, an accomplished bureaucrat? Like that didn't sound uh, mm-hmm. like what 10-year-old Dale would have wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would always and I had a great job. I mean, it was a really it was like a GS13 before I was 30. Uh I had a great path ahead of me benefits retirement. Um, but I would watch like my supervisors and everybody 20 years ahead of me. Um, and they were like, I can still distinctly remember the sound of the shuffling of their feet as Mm -hmm. they like walked the hallway to get their cup of coffee. And then eyes were on the eyes were on the floor, shuffling, walking back to their cubicle. And I was just like, I, I, I gotta get. I gotta find something to get
0: me out of here. Uh, understandable, and and the the gym, man. I can totally see how it would fill so many needs that you just expressed that you had, or you know, so many other people have as well. That finding the tribe, the sense of purpose, purpose. You know, in the military, you're very much serving others, and mm-hmm. and in the gym, even though, like you said, you got a ton out of the gym, but it, its role and its very nature is serving others. I mean, so I bet it, I bet it, it was like a, a square peg and a square hole just fit, just fit really beautifully for you just when you needed it.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. And then the other thing that was going on at a, at a community neighborhood level, um, you know, I left in 99 to go to college. I came back <clears throat> at this point, it was two, uh, 2007, 2008. And I, it was like, going from one war zone to another as far as like what my, what my town had undergone through the opioid crisis and epidemic um it was just like bordered down or shacked up businesses no people were outside anymore crime rate was through the roof um and then just seeing my town just sprinkled with these quote-unquote clinics that were the only businesses that had opened up in the last decade.
0: This was in Um, what year? I returned in like 2007, 2008. Okay. So it happened while you were gone. Yeah. Okay. And then you come back home and your eyes are seeing a town that you don't remember when you left. Yeah. And my friends, like my friends were now, a lot of my friends
1: were were addicted to opiates. Um, And you just heard of like wild stories. And then you just kind of see the man, like literally zombies walking through the town. Um, just high on heroin or, or pain pills.
0: You know, well, walk me through that a bit, right? I mean, so, you know, anybody who's been around for a bit and, you know, you, you, every family has their stuff. You're, you're eventually going to have your friends or yourself or family members that, that deal with something. And I, I mean, I know very few people that this crisis hasn't touched in one way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Myself included, my extended family included. But, you know, for maybe the, uh, uninitiated to some degree, that just hear ah oh, there's an opioid crisis. There's an opioid crisis. Yeah, I know that because I see it in a headline every now and then. But uh, but nobody actually goes. Well, what what is it? An, an opioid, right? I mean, so I'm certainly not a a doctor or a chemist. But my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, was that you know initially opioids were administered to people professionally and effectively as potent pain medication or an anesthetic if you you had a surgery you had Mm -hmm. something you needed something to so that you could recover and take that edge off it was prescribed for that and and for what i believe it was prescribed initially for rather substantial things traumas, surgery things that nature and then slowly it started to creep into i've got an achy back you're like okay well give this a try probably way too potent for what you need but hey give it a try and then you know, it's it was a slippery slope of of that. That's my very naive understanding. And I don't know if it that if it's just that simple that that, you know, slid into easy to get, uh, took my pain away, highly addictive, gotta keep getting it, started to ruin my life. But what, you know, from from your perspective, you are a billion times more in the trenches than I have. You worked with countless more people than I have. What's your take on, you know, how did your turn your town turn into a zombie land in a few years
1: yeah so uh op- opioids come from opium and i think you know a lot of people are f- are familiar with opium it's it's a plant it's a poppy and for thousands of years has been known uh for its pain relieving properties it's also been equally known for it's addictive qualities. Mm-hmm. I mean, China fought wars, the Opium Wars against Britain. Um, like, opium dens were a thing in the 1800s. So, where basically people just smoked hash and just completely zeroed out. Mm. Um, it's really fascinating to study the Opium Wars. And China knew about this back then, uh, it knew the devastation it was causing its communities throughout China anyways fast forward now and it because of that um heroin especially was kind of like the first chemically evolved um opioid okay and and was administered and if you go purdue pharma produced the first drug was ms cotton and it was only used for cancer patients or people in severe severe acute pain and you had to be hospitalized to be administered it I see. Okay. So, it was in a controlled environment. Very controlled environment. And then around the 80s to early 90s, things started shifting a little bit, primarily due to pharmaceutical company influence uh, on physicians. Okay. Also happened to play with the fact that Purdue Pharma's first drug, MS Cotton, the patent had ran out. They produced a new drug called OxyContin. Oxycotton, the technological innovation between that was it was a timed release. So it was a in and all molec on a chemical level, oxycotton and heroin are the same thing. Oh really? I, I did not know that. <laughs> it's exactly like molecularly on a molecular level, um, it's the same thing. So it's from oxycotton is from oxycodone, which is a chemical derivative of essentially heroin, you trace it all the way back to opium.
2: Huh.
1: Now, and you're right, like you had to be in a hospitalized setting to get that initially. But as we all know, Pat, the the market of cancer patients is very, very small. Mm. People that have got an achy back, achy knee, and an achy shoulder, we're talking much larger market mm-hmm. to to, uh, to find a drug for. So around the and, same and time, if you
0: can, and if you can some way, I guess, get it, uh, legal or, or change the regulation. So it can be administered outside of an actual hospital in these pain clinics, so to speak.
1: Correct. Correct. Um, so what p- Purdue pharma knew this and they also knew the physicians understood how addictive, um, p- these, opioid based painkillers were. So they could, they basically instituted a very successful psyop campaign against physicians claiming that this Oxycontin was not, not addictive at all. And that was all based upon junk science for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so they got physicians on board and how, Portsmouth got hit so hard was the very first doctor that figured out he could just write scripts for cash, which is what a pain clinic is that happened in Portsmouth. So the very first,
0: no kidding. Yeah. Yep. Literally ground zero,
1: literally ground zero. So his name was Dr. Proctor. He's now, he's now in, in federal prison. Um, But, and it's crazy, dude. Like I went to high school with his sons.
0: No kidding. Talk about small small town. town. Yeah.
1: So he was kind of the first guy to get it rolling. And literally you just had to go and say, he'd be like, does your back hurt? Mm
2: -hmm. Yes.
1: Your back hurts. Here's a script. And so you get, you start to get a very small population addicted and it just spreads like a virus.
0: Wow. And okay, that makes sense. I wanna circle back in a second in, in a bit to see where if fentanyl loops in somewhere there yeah. as well. But yeah. but now here's the other just question, right? So that makes sense to me. Understand the chain of events, understand how it became easier to get, understand how you know the clinic there and easy script, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now for it to just caused the uh, astonishing level of addiction uh, deaths the whole nine yards Uh, again pardon my ignorance but you know is it just one two three this casual domino effect of genuinely innocent person with legitimate back pain goes in there gets it life ruined or does the word get out that hey we got a place here that you can do it. If you, you know, are into that lifestyle, you can go get yourself something high and potent right here. You know, how did it become so big? Was it people who were already addicted to something else or was it really innocent folks with pain that just spiraled? It's both.
1: So there, there are countless examples and stories of uh, somebody goes, gets knee surgery, they get prescribed this outside of a hospitalized setting. Um, that happened, that happened all the time. Mm, okay. But you also have people who under like once the word got out, like, Hey, these things will get the these things will get you high
2: mm-hmm. no, no
1: matter what. So you have like innocent people being affected. <clears throat> then you have, you know, tr- there are drug abusers and then they just, they could go to the same source for, for drugs. So it's kind of a perfect storm.
0: And I guess maybe it depends upon the individual user and the level of use and all of that stuff and how frequently they're going back if they do indeed get addicted. But it sounds like your chances of getting addicted are, are quite high. Is in your experience has you know because you hear from the outside looking in of you know the the high powered executive that. You know, does a little cocaine on the weekend in the bathroom and still somehow holds down a very demanding job and you would never know and all this stuff. Is that the deal with opioids as well? Is there a lot of people walking around that you would never have any sense of what's going on? Or does it does it for darn near everybody lead to you can't hold down a job, you get in trouble there, your family and friends turn their back on you, now you're living on the street? Like what what is what what What's the path when you start to get addicted to opioids? Yeah. That you've I mean, seen? I don't,
1: I don't mean to sound contrite, but there's no social heroin user, mm. right? Yeah, you know I mean, like you don't, you don't do heroin socially. Mm-hmm. It, it once you do it and you become addicted to it, it is your life. Okay. Everything revolves, yeah. Everything, everything revolves around you doing whatever it takes to get your next fix. So you're Um, going to be possessed by it, basically.
0: Yep. Yep. 100%. And then does it, I I would assume that it has to lead to other illicit behavior, because if you're not, if it's so possessive that you're not going to be able to hold down your job, well, you're still gonna have to get money somewhere to to get the darn thing or pay your insurance bills or whatever. So I would assume it's going to be associated with some other crime or, or bad behavior for a community.
1: Yep. And so what happens is that very first pain clinic that started in the 90s eventually proliferates across the entire Appalachian American region to include eventually the entire nation. Um, There's a great documentary that just came out uh, on CNN called uh, American Pain. So these guys, so you hear a lot of, you know, we like, you know, Florida took the business model and ran ran with it. (laughs) But, you know, by God, it started in, uh, in in Southern Ohio, but with these guys, these, you didn't, these guys had no medical background. They were just meatheads. Um, and we're, and we're propping up these stores left and right. So what you'll have it it, and it's because the state regulations in Florida weren't tracking the drugs. Mm -hmm. So now you have individuals, let's go back to, Hey, uh, I've got a bad back from being in the military. So my buddy says, Oh dude, if you're having pain issues, go see Dr. Proctor walk in there, give him 200 bucks, walk out with oxy eighties, take one. I feel great. Well, I'm going to take these every day. Cause I don't want the pain to come back. Mm-hmm. Now I'm addicted. That one pain clinic might only be able to see me once a month. So now I'm doctor shopping.
0: So in the case
1: of like the Oxy Express from like Ohio to Florida, now I can drive down to Florida, go to five different pain clinics there, get my bottles, come back to Ohio. And now, because now I need money to support my habit, now I'm selling pills
0: on the streets. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah, I can see how it wouldn't take long for that to, to rip a, a large community apart, let alone a small town. Right where there, yeah, where there's no, <clears throat> which a lot of people, and
1: you'll find it in the Rust Belt communities where typically hit the hardest. Steel mills closed, pill mills opened up, um, and where people, and it goes back. I mean, it, it all comes full circle eventually. But like, people were devoid of hope. People were devoid of purpose. Uh, And that's a great way to get addicted to
0: drugs. Mm -hmm. And is is there a significant change in behavior? I mean, like, do people have high highs or low lows? Are they manic? Are they full of anxiety? Are they violent to be around? You know, what what have you seen in somebody fully gripped by the addiction? What's their behavior like?
1: On on opiates, they're just like zombies like they're completely like you just sit in a chair and and let let the euphoric feeling come over you
2: mm-hmm. it's not
1: an upper uh it's a downer problem is that high wears off it you will you know I, I wish i could clinically state how long it takes but um if you don't get your drug withdrawals set in pretty gnarly and pretty fast so in order to avoid being violently physical ill, you now have to do whatever you gotta do to get your next fix. And mm-hmm. that's where um nonviolent drug crime starts to happen.
0: I would assume you do darn near anything to keep that feeling from creeping back into your body.
1: Yeah. When I when I when I moved back home, my car got broken into within like two months and I'm like, you know, freaking out and the whole thing. And my buddy's like, oh
0: dude, that's your first time? Like <laughs> oh wow! Really? It's that just common? Yeah, yeah. So, as if that's not bad enough, how and why does fentanyl enter the scene? From what you've experienced in your community? Yeah. So, and and I should say to, to the to the folks at home, you know, I did. We've all heard of, of fentanyl, and I did just enough research on it to be dangerous. And. You know, I've had some good surgeries in my life. I broke my pelvis in the military, and you know, that was a good one. And on that, I had morphine for that. And I remember to this day how effective and potent and put me in la la land a good dose of morphine was. And then I read that fentanyl is 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. And having experienced morphine, when I read that, I can't imagine what 50 to 100 times would be like
1: yeah dude Uh, so i like to tell people fentanyl is like the high fructose corn syrup of sugar so Mm -hmm. it's chemically produced it's cheaper to make and it's more potent um so we have pain pills so these things we talk about these in three waves of the opioid crisis First one is the pain pills, which we've talked a little bit about. Uh, Rightfully so. Uh, Everything started getting cracked down in like 2010 to 14. To give you a frame of reference, um, in my county in Ohio, from 2006 to 2012, there were 47 million pain pills prescribed.
0: Are you kidding me?
1: No, and that's all verifiable through the DEA database. That's just
0: in your county. That's my county of 70,000 people. I feel like that would be an impressive statistic for the country. (laughs) Wow, that's in your county. That's my county in Ohio, and we weren't even the worst county. Wow. That's amazing. How many people live in your county? Do you know? 70,000. Wow. Wow. That's, I mean, and obviously all of them aren't using those pills. So some, so some significantly smaller portion of 70,000 people ran through that many pills. Yep. But yeah, I do. Oh, So now that's we crazy. have,
1: we, we have that many pills that are out there. So imagine um, people who are now addicted to it and then the government catches on. Get you, some would argue the government knew all along, but now we have to do something about it. So the DA clamps down on these pain clinics, and all pain clinics were uh, essentially made illegal. Well, <clears throat> cats out, the genie's out of the bottle. At that point, you have however many people now addicted to to opiates.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now they got to get it s- somewhere. So in this case, pain pills go to heroin. So you oh. know heroin, yeah, heroin, that's when we start to get in talking about um, cartels and the in the border situation. But essentially, all heroin, majority of all heroin, was trafficked from up from Mexico into major, big city distribution centers, and then found their way to the biggest markets where pain pills used to be.
0: Because once those clinics so, shut down, they've got to get that fixed somewhere because the horrible yeah. feeling of withdrawals coming fast. Yep. Yeah, you don't just not become an addict overnight.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so then, kind of a couple years later, so now we're talking, let's just say, 2016-17. China is really good at making the chemical substrates for fentanyl. And those, basically, you can, you can mail order those directly if you know what you're doing on the black, black market.
0: Oh, wow, well, that's convenient.
1: or um they just ship them directly to mexico where they're manufactured in the lab down in mexico back to your earlier point so uh fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin and the volume is significantly lower so you can kind of see see this like this is just a pin top so Whatever we catch on this pin top of fentanyl is enough for you to overdose and die. Really? That, yeah, that's, that's the level of what we're talking about.
0: Do you now, know is, is, if somebody gets on from an opioid, now they take something that they didn't realize had some fentanyl in it, is the addiction to fentanyl you know, it's that much more potent than morphine or potent than an opioid. Is the addiction that much stronger or is it kind of same, same for lack of a better way to say it? it it's, it, uh, it's like this, like if you're an
1: alcoholic, you don't care if it's gin or you don't gotcha. care okay. if it's bourbon, you don't care. You're It's there, right? Yep. We, with fentanyl, it's just been made cheaper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's cheaper to get, like I said, it's like the high fructose corn syrup. Of drugs
0: and I guess if it's cheaper and more potent and you're addicted that sounds like the route you're probably gonna go yep and I actually had this
1: conversation the other day because obviously s- smaller amounts more
0: potent is will lead to overdose mm. so I, I would, would assume like, your well, margin wow. your margin for a mistake is a lot smaller too it's it's nil like
1: you it's in and, and that should tell people how addictive the drug is. They want it so bad, they're willing to risk their life to get that fix. They know what's happening. It's not a secret.
0: I mean, they really are, um, again, I can't speak for this and I'm not about to air a lot of the stuff that's happened uh, in my extended family as well, but we've dealt with some stuff uh, in my family as well. And there's some people that I grew up with and they're not those people anymore. Uh, because of oh. various astonishing addiction that um, that ruined their life, and that's not for me to give them a free pass for all their destructive behavior and whatnot. But it is literally like somebody went in, lobotomized them, and and put an entirely different brain function, emotion in them. They, they look the same, but they are not the same person. Again, I'm not no. trying to let anyone off off the hook, but what this stuff does to people is it's almost like science fiction.
1: Yeah. It's a complete hijacking of the brain. hundred uh, percent. It's proven you could like, you can brain scan people. Like when, when that, when that opioid attacks the brain and blocks the dopamine receptor, like you, you, you have to have it. Mm-hmm. It is truly. And you're right. Like prior to working with folks in recovery, um, you know, I'm, I used to think they were all shit bag needle jammers like that. It's, it's, so
0: if it hasn't hit you, it's so easy to be like, get a job. What are you doing? Pull your life together. Yeah. Have a little discipline. What do you, I mean, come on.
1: And I was just like, Oh, I, you know, I served in the military. I came back home. I opened up a business. Like what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and it was an easy mascot to have, on the decline of our town was the abuser, was the addict. Mm-hmm. But until like you've sat, gone through it, had conversations. Now I, I walked in on the apartment when my best friend died of an overdose.
0: Oh I, really? I,
1: I saw I saw it, and, and before that, I but the very first time I saw somebody getting Narcan was my best friend six months before, and you're right, like. <clears throat> he was not the same person. Mm -hmm. And I've seen like, um, you know, I employ a lot of people in recovery and just found found this out through just experience. Um, And what somebody told me that is the best advice I can give anybody that's dealing with somebody uh, in active addiction is Don't be willing to put more energy into their recovery than they are themselves.
0: Thank you. That led to a question that I wanted to get. We'll obviously eventually get to how somebody doing a deadlift helps. But um, that was one of the things that I've heard over and over and over again from people who were seriously addicted to some of the most powerful and potent things and now we're we're clean which shockingly is a very small percentage of people as much as i hate to say that but that just speaks to how gripping the addiction is and every single one of those people basically said you know how many people i've had try to save my life and talk sense into me and it never worked until i decided that it was time to do it and so that has been your experience as well
1: yeah hands down but it's it's uh And so my, my best friend's name was Billy and everybody at the gym kind of knew something was going on. And one of our mutual friends said, dude, like, what, what do I do? Like, what's going to like, I want to help. Like, how do I, how do I kind of help here? And I just told him, I was like, listen, live your life with him as if he's going to die tomorrow and you don't want any regrets. Because it's going to happen. Right. And and when somebody's down that path, I mean, this is just from my personal experience. And it's not, I'm not a counselor. I'm not, not either. We're not counselors
0: or doctors. We're just having a (laughs) conversation.
1: Is um, when somebody gets at that level, you're right. They have to make the choice. But you can be there along the way and ensure in a non-judgmental way mm-hmm. that hey, I know if when I'm ready, I can call Pat and Pat will be there. That makes sense. Pat's right. not Pat's not gonna be angry at me. Pat's not gonna hate me. Pat doesn't have any judgment. And but for them to know that, when they're when they're tumbling, spiraling down to rock bottom, and rock bottom is death now. Mm-hmm. It's just gonna be Lucky that they don't die is that you text them every day and just say, Hey, dude, checking in on you. Love you. You need help. I'm here. And you may not ever hear anything back. But when that person may or may not die, you aren't going to live w- with regret like Billy's mom has. She mm. feels she enabled him more than she should have. And I'm sure his dad probably feels he was too harsh. Mm-hmm. So you're you're going to be left with that. Um it's a very gnarly path. We just we just went no, down, but, you, but.
0: but you're right. I mean, you're and there are no rules to where we go with this conversation. We go where we want. You're you're right. I mean, again, um, you know, just in the family experience that I've had, I can't imagine being a parent and seeing that happen to a child because you're just torn into these two depending upon the drug too uh sure what i'm speaking sure. of wasn't wasn't an opioid but you're torn in this in this path of you know you love your child and and you do anything for them and you lay down your life for them and, and all this stuff and then they exhibit this sort of behavior that is violent or or dangerous to you or your child or little kids that are around or they're draining your finances or whatnot and since they're your child you give them a second chance and then a third mm-hmm. chance and then a fourth chance and then sadly since they are addicted it gets to a point where you reach that terrible point that you never thought you would as a parent where you have to turn your back on your child because maybe you don't know what else to do and what a horrible hell that is to walk around with I mean, so there's a bunch of people that you know, don't have any formal education in counseling or grief management or trauma or crisis or addiction that just have their lives turned upside down by loved ones and don't know what in the heck to do, you know, and they just try and try and try until they have to make a miserable decision. So I can I mean, I can't even imagine what that poor woman is, is living yeah. with, you know, that, that's a guilt you shouldn't have to walk around with.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, and you just have to understand it's like, I, I've learned this the hard way uh, through multiple experiences with employees and guys that we've coached. And the whole thing is, uh, you know, we come from a very we're an honor culture from from our previous background. Like, what you you do, what you say, and you say what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when somebody violates that, like it's it's an egregious thing, right? On on our behalf, you got to throw that. <laughs> You got to throw that out the window, <laughs> right? You know what I mean, when somebody's in active addiction, they are lying to you. They are not telling you the truth. And you can't take that personally. Mm, it's easy to I, say, hard to do, easy to say, hard to do. Um, and you don't want to be in a position to where you excuse their behavior. That's not what you're doing. You just can't take it personal. What you just you when they are talking to you, they are lying. Mm -hmm. that's just what you have to do and you you have to love them through that and that means tough love in a lot of cases um and just it's the same thing in crossfit man like we as coaches we get wrapped around and like trying to push people to do things and it's just like well you know mary's 56 years old and maybe she just never wants to do kipping pull-ups man right
0: right (laughs) mary's gonna be just fine Mary's
1: just there. Mary's here. She's here three to four times a week. She's loving it. She's having fun. Let's meet Mary where Mary's at, and uh, it's the same thing. Like,
0: so I think we've got a, a decent groundwork laid of the actual problem why you had people in community and God knows what else in, in desperate need of something. And if we and you've got your gym which has been going on for multiple years now what, what made you want to not only have, for lack of a better way to say, it, you know, regular folks, the gym, but now people who are down in the depths of addiction or somewhere in the road to recovery, or want to mix them in with the population that was there. And how does that even start if we just said that they have to want it for themselves first?
1: Um you, you talking about somebody that's in recovery or?
0: Well, I, I guess so. I guess maybe yeah. I should start with what what was the catalyst where you started to use your gym as a place to okay. help these people?
1: So my my friend that that died of an overdose, um, he was an executive for a behavioral health agency. Uh, it's a fancy way of saying a recovery center or addiction treatment. Um, he was their general counsel. He was their, he was their attorney. Mm. Um, he was a member at my gym and I didn't know he had a previous drug problem. And then one day he comes up to me, he's like, Hey man, I'm taking a new job. Um, CrossFit has been instrumental in my own recovery. And I'd love for us to figure out a way, um, to do CrossFit classes for our clients. So I was like, yeah, dude, that sounds like a great idea. Um, and he's like, we we have a new facility two blocks from the street. Uh, let's just try to do one class a day
0: and see what happens. Uh, so these are so people was, who are actively enrolled in in a, in a recovery program. Yep.
1: Yeah. So um, people that are in recovery programs are essentially classified as um, inpatient treatment, which means they are there full time, don't leave uh, for a period of 30, 60, 90 days. Uh, and then you have Outpatient or in, you know, transitional living clients, um, so they can still come back and receive <clears throat> receive services
0: from the agency. Okay, and so those are people who have graduated from the inpatient program, so to speak, and are in that what I would assume absolutely mission critical phase of reentering society with all its temptations and whatnot, and trying to stay the path.
1: Yeah, nailed it, man, nailed it. And, and the problem with modern treatment, um, you know fortunately it's it's paid for um in our area like if it wasn't paid by the government people would just not get treatment sure um, i believe that the problem with that though is it's confined to a 30 nine day period which i you know i tell people like that's basic training like
0: mm-hmm. it's easy
1: to do good in basic training like <laughs> you don't <laughs> you don't have mm-hmm. a choice like you get drill sergeant's over you. You're monitored twenty four hours a day. Right, but when you go to your first unit, that's when you start to learn what it really takes to be, become a soldier.
0: And now you have the freedom to make a mistake or to make a good reputation. Yep, yep. And
1: what's critical in that, in that, is that is that NCO to you know grab you by your shirt collar and tell you you're screwing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's a longer-term, less intensive, longer-term. We need to talk about mentorship. We need to talk about getting a job. We need to talk about continu- like getting drug screen three times a week. There's
0: still all these things that we have to attach to you to ensure your success long-term. And those happen in the outpatient. Correct. Talking about employment, things of that nature. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Do you have any sense of um, the... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess the level of attrition or failure or success in the outpatient for every hundred people that go into the outpatient, how many 10 years later they're like rocking it, crushing it haven't touched anything. It's tough. And the reason that metric will always be tough to
1: understand is because not all treatment facilities are the same. Mm, okay. uh, so they offer care different ways. Um, but that's why, everybody gets their head wrapped around the 30, 60, 90 days. And a lot of, you know, a lot of facilities have gotten a bad reputation just because they, they just get them in, spit them out. And those guys relapse, come right back in. And we, you know, we're, we get on this hamster wheel to where mm-hmm. we never really start solving, start solving the problem, but it's, oh, it's a tough measure to measure.
0: I, I would think the outpatient thing is so, Absolutely critical to be beyond belief. I mean, that's your the people that you hang around with and associate with, and what are they into? What are the decisions? What are the conversations? Can you open up to them? Because, you know, I feel like I'm addicted to things in this world too. They're just luckily not illegal. And I've tried to, I mean, in, in all honesty. And I've yeah. I've tried with some of them to put them to the wayside, but they keep coming back. I can't imagine if and, and that's just with something casual, you know. I can't imagine yeah. if it was an actual like an opioid addiction. Now to suddenly have graduated from some sixty-day program to be launched back out and to quote unquote be cured. I don't think that's probably how that works. I bet it is it is a uh, daily mountain of discipline required to stay on the path. Yes it's it's
1: discipline and accountability Mm -hmm. and that's what makes CrossFit such a a to add in somebody's personal recovery
0: well so I go so now let's let's get that you know you have this conversation with your friend it sounds like a good idea what does this mean you're just you know running 15 outpatients through Diane on a Wednesday you know what's happening
1: (laughs) oh dude I wish uh (laughs) So we we started and we just, we had a room. It reminded me a lot, like when my gym first started in, in 2010, um, we had people show up, uh, we had anybody anywhere from six weeks of being sober to days of being sober. Oh, wow. Um, and you know, we just like, we, we taught them how to do an air squat. Taught them how to do an air squat, and we did like a tag team. You know, you ran the length of the building. You did one air squat. You came back. You tagged your partner. They did the same, and we just kept going up in reps, and it destroyed them. <laughs> sure. Yes. Sure. <laughs> it destroyed them, um, and and that's where we started. So uh, I guess
0: my I guess my question is, you know, if you've got a a bunch of new folks that aren't in an outpatient situation, right? They're just new folks, deconditioned, new to strength and conditioning and all that. You know, you've got your same basic principles of crawl, walk, run, of the foundational movements that you're going to teach them. You can let them know why we're doing these things. Um, there's, you know, mechanics, consistency, and then intensity, it, you know, that's what you would do for the regular populace. In all honesty, is that w- you're doing something different for these people or was it the method that works for the populace as well? So what we've found um,
1: versus where we started and where we're at Mm. is because like this is not a normal CrossFit group, right? So, you you know, we do, we, in theory, mechanics, consistency, intensity. The issue is you're always going to be getting new people in, new people out all the time. Um, so we have to, we have to program the lowest skill, highest output things that we can in order to elicit the response that we're wanting and not run any sort of injury risk.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And how long has this program been up and running now? We're going into our fifth year. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's a significant pool of data. Has your friend who worked at this facility that I I would assume since he worked at this facility, he had a a decent eye as to what typical outpatients looked like, what they were reporting, levels of compliance and things like that. Has he been able to, along with you, shed any light as to how much of an impact, if any, did functional movements, variance and intensity have on the outpatient and addiction experience or recovery experience, I should say?
1: I'll, I'll tell you this, when we started in 2018, we did one class four days a week. The program has been so successful that we do five classes a day Oh, wow. across t- three. Actually, there's three facilities now. Two of the classes are for staff. Three of the classes are for clients. They now employ people. You can get a job now as a fitness trainer slash counselor to work in this program. The CEO, the executive team never misses their staff class. Fitness is foundational to their success. That is, I mean, how spectacular is that? Yeah, dude, it's it's the most rewarding and fulfilling thing I've ever done. And it's of, like, like
0: yeah. It it's almost like CrossFit works. You would think. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought There's I a read river. a blog post that it was stupid. Uh you know, and it's so funny, right? Like I don't know if you need a study to prove that or, or whatnot, but you you would you would almost intuitively know going in. You're like, look, I don't know how much this is gonna help somebody stay away from a substance they want, but I'm here to tell you, nothing bad is going to happen by Embracing some clean food, getting the heart rate up, getting a little external loading on your body, high fiving some people and having a good time for an hour. Nothing bad's gonna happen from that. Nothing's bad nothing bad's gonna happen. And like we'll uh, you know, I'll even tell them, like,
1: dude, in a way, like we're just replacing one addiction for another.
0: Sure. I mean you're telling me people aren't addicted to whether it's CrossFit or the feeling of working out or just physical movement, like absolutely an addiction, luckily a positive one, but absolutely. Right. Right. And, you know, and we try to do everything like, you
1: know, we all know what a normal CrossFit class looks like. Um, But what, you know, we've talked about people becoming addicted. What a lot of people don't talk about is why people become addicted. That's the oh, much yeah, larger.
0: Please. Well, yeah that would be what have you heard or learned
1: um to me it it kind of comes down to just a couple things one it's it's generational where I'm from pretty much mm-hmm. odds are if your if your mom or your father uh, was a drug abuser, you don't have much of a chance to not be one.
0: You're starting um, out
1: in a hole that I can't imagine yeah because that's that's the environment that you that you grew up in. I mean, that's, that's Appalachia, man. That's Southern Ohio um, or, and, or um, trauma. Mm. So we are all dealing with some aspect of trauma in our life um, that we've all been told that there's a pill you can take for that um, versus somebody teaching you, training you to understand what it's like to deal with. Being uncomfortable with things physically mm-hmm. first of all, um, and then psychologically secondly, and you know, there's no better there's no better way than safely introducing physiological stress, right, in order to unlock psychological adaptations. I mean, that's a I'm ripping off what Greg Go- always said. But.
0: Well, you get that, and you get going way back to what we spoke about at the beginning of this conversation. Something that was communal and necessary and tribe-like from the military order, having your group. So the the physical hardship and how it's mentally challenging, like CrossFit's tough. I mean, it stings if you're doing it right. And most people avoid discomfort. But there's some, I'm certainly not a clinical psychologist, but there's some clinical psychology that basically lends itself to them, oversimplifying it, that if you if you're forcing somebody to do something hard, that's just, it is what it is. But if you develop a person who voluntarily does hard things, voluntarily Mm -hmm. of their own free will, there's like a powerful psychological change and adaptation. Like you become a more resilient person through Mm -hmm. voluntarily dealing with hardships. And now you take that, which you can find in many places, but you'll find it in CrossFit. And then you have that communal aspect, which building a community um, it was an old crossfit journal article that i think like a, a senior marine officer said basically that if somebody asked him how you build teams or how you build bonds or whatever and he said it's equal parts suffering and laughter and if you mm-hmm. can have the same experience produce yeah. suffering and laughter to a group of people those people will bond like no other um you know because the hardship has to be that there is the suffering but then you have the the laughter aspect as well so you take that combined with somebody voluntarily doing hard things that's a really powerful combination to uh, ideally skyrocket somebody into a better place in their life not saying it'll cure everything that's wrong but but you're not going to do them any harm I'll tell you that much no No,
1: this, the, you know, the standard speech that I give new folks coming in, I'm just like, this is going to probably be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. And that's, and that's okay. Um,
0: It's actually necessary. Yeah.
1: For the next hour, all, all I'm attempting to do here is to train you to not quit. I don't care what weight you pick. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care what happens. All Mm -hmm. I care about is that you continually make an effort to do one more rep and not quit because when this hour is over or when this, you know, when you leave this program in, in day 90, day 91, you're literally stepping off into a war zone and you're, you're the, the voice is going to start whispering in your head.
2: It's Mm -hmm. the same
1: voice that's telling you to slow down. It's the same voice that's telling you, I want to quit. It's the same voice that's telling you, I'm not going to do this workout tomorrow. That, so all we're doing is attempting to have awareness of when that voice is, the whisper becomes a roar, and then just telling it to shut up for a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. That's all we're doing here. To take control. Yep. To take it uh, as and, a, and then a them, lesson.
1: Like, suffering leads to capability. Mm-hmm. And these these people have been told they're incapable their entire life. So we want to we want to expose them to very hard things. And then we want to we don't want to beat them down with our coaching. We want to support them through it
0: with mm-hmm. our coaching well, there's, and then
1: showing them that they can do it.
0: There's so much going on that, like you said, these people have been beat down or told a certain narrative that is probably poison in their mind. And that it all comes back to potentially whatever trauma they did or didn't deal with That that they could be have crushed their self-worth, have crushed their confidence and their and their belief. And to slowly just build that back up brick by brick, workout by workout in a challenging environment, but it's a safe and controlled environment full of people who truly care. And when you fail and you will, you're going to mm-hmm. fail with friends and those friends aren't going to kick you when you're down. They're going to extend their hand and pick you up. Now you're really doing something powerful and important. And and maybe that's like you said, that, you know, you might open a gym thinking you're going to do one thing and it, it turns into something else and, and, and has has evolved into something beyond your wildest dreams that 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 serves you as well as much as you're serving these yeah. people.
1: Yeah, it, it's uh, like I said in the beginning, man, uh, selfishly, I feel I get I get the most out
0: of it i'm sure you've got tons of these um but in everything that's crossed your path is there one or two unique stories or success stories or heartbreaking story i mean just a couple of stories that that popped your mind of how that's from the last five years of helping these folks out
1: yeah so you know fortunately i was in a position uh i now own a couple of companies uh, and i'm proud to say former clients that I used to coach uh, I now have three level one trainers uh, who used clients. Um, That's awesome. I have, you know, we employ three people in recovery at Dr. Spartan and then we employ two people in recovery at um, Spartan solutions group. They all came through the program. So it goes back to what you're saying though, but they needed part-time employment mentorship to help bridge the next piece of their life. So we have a guy, he's, he's actually a, he works for Doc Spartan and he's a level one coach. His name's Ricky. And uh, he got hired two, three years ago around Christmas time, you know, came up, you know, his first month came on got his first, first paycheck, you know, we stroked him a check, gave it to him, he turned around, he <laughs> turned around, came back into the conference room, pulls the pulls the check out of his pocket, unfolds it, looks at us and says, uh, I just want to say thank you for the first time in my life. I can buy my kid a Christmas present. Oh man. Are you kidding <laughs> me? And I'm like, I still get gutted talking about that.
0: Yeah. Today. Yeah. I mean, the, I don't even know what else to say That that if that doesn't, tear your heart out, um, or stir something up in you, you're, you're dead to the world. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. I mean, and just think of the, you know, like you said, selfishly, you feel good from, and I get that, that would be ama- an amazing to, to be part of that rewarding experience it would make me feel 10 feet tall. But imagine what that individual felt like, you know, walking into whatever store and, and getting whatever darn toy they wanted off the yeah. shelf and with their hard-earned money and, and knowing that they did it, their work, their effort nobody did it for them uh, that's a powerful powerful thing that's, that's incredible yeah,
1: yeah. It, and that's like one of dozens of,
0: oh i'm sure of i'm you sure know? I, mean, I
1: get to see guys uh you know we have our very first guy andrew you know, seeing him from day one, five years ago. Now he's like, he just clean and jerked 300 pounds the other day. (laughs) Uh, And uh, he absolutely loves coaching. And and it's wild to see, you know, because our gym is separate from where we do um, the the class for folks in recovery. And then, you know, eventually two years later, we'll have a new coach pop up. Mm-hmm. and these guys are coaching like in some cases millionaires in some cases just like very wealthy to do folks and uh they have no clue that that guy was homeless 2 years ago <laughs> that's that's now helping them learn to do double unders or 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 whatever and it's just fascinating to see that
0: that transition in people's lives what a yeah what a circle of life well let me um let me close it out with this. If somebody is, is fired up, they're inspired, you know, they've had a gym for a while and they're like, man, it would be so meaningful to do something like Dale was talking about there. What's your quick recommendation or, or path? Does somebody just start? Do they, do they find the counseling center in their town and make that partnership? Or what would you say is your lessons learned in hindsight?
1: I would say to me, there's two ways of doing it. Um, and it revolves around how big of an impact you want to have. Uh, there, there's great organizations like the Phoenix that you can work with that you can offer your your spot up and you can do one class a week for, for folks in recovery. That's great and, that, and that's very popular. What we what we want to do is go find a reputable counseling center in your area and there should be for every crossFit gym there should be three or four, Mm. Depending on where you live, um, and go approach them and say, "Hey, I own ABC CrossFit down the street. CrossFit has been proven to be a tremendous asset and aid in people's recovery, uh, and I'd like to offer you and your staff a free month at my gym, just to see what CrossFit is like, and no strings attached. And we all know what's going to happen if they if they take that." that free mm-hmm. month offer. And at the end of 30 days, sit down with, with Janie or Tim and say, Hey, this is, this is my, um, hourly rate that I would love to, to strike some sort of contract up with you guys. And let's just start with, with one class a week mm-hmm. and uh, see where it goes. Cause oh, I, I, yeah, I firmly believe you, you can't sustain this program unless it's backed by money and you should not feel any sort of negative attachment to making money and changing people's lives, especially when the majority of treatment <clears throat> is is Medicare dollar paid.
0: Well, and then, you know, the other part of it is that the lease on your building isn't paid with kind words. Right. I mean, the, the landlord's going to want a check stroke. So, yeah, you want to help people. But if you don't keep the lights on, you're going to help zero people. You know, so there's yeah, know, just, it is what it is. So that that, that makes sense. Well, if people want to connect with you, reach out to you, find you, follow you on social media, how can they do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, probably Instagram is the best way. Um, it's just at daleking.740. And if you're really interested, just shoot me a message. We actually, um, this past year, we started doing seminars uh, for affiliate owners at our place. We have a little manual that I'll send you free of charge that you can check out. Awesome. Um, Yeah, that's, that's the best way.
0: Dale, I appreciate it, brother. Inspiring, motivating. I've heard a lot of CrossFit stories. I've talked to a lot of affiliate owners and you guys are doing the work. So please, please, please know it's appreciated and keep it up. Well, dude, it happens because of guys like you
1: and and Boz, um, that were there from the, from the early days, man, what you guys inspired me a lot when I used to download the impact. To, uh, <laughs> days gone to by. Watch the, yeah. To watch the motorcycle adventures, man. So thank you. Well,
0: you took, you took the ball and you ran with it. So once again, thanks brother. Yeah, man.